Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Whole Brother Mission Podcast. Uh, we're about to have an educational conversation today, uh, as my guest is the Assistant Professor of History at the College at Southeastern, Dr. Brent O'Quinn. How are you doing today, sir? I'm great. How are you, Mike? I'm doing good. I'm glad to have you. So uh, I asked you on because uh, I've attended the school that you that you teach at when uh in, in my, pa- my past life uh, during college, uh, uh, had the opportunity to work there as a colleague as well, and have appreciated some of your contributions as it relates to the conversation about history. And I think um, I wanted to have this conversation because it's interesting how when we look at America's history, we obviously know today racial tensions are high. There's lots of discussions about culture, race, so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. I think these conversations get politicized to where if you have a certain view, that means that you're liberal, and if you have another view, that means you're conservative. But I think regardless of political party, history is what it is. Either it happened or it didn't happen. Uh, so I wanted to try to have a conversation about America's history in regards to race that is apolitical, but just dealing with the facts. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll have it be known that you know Southeastern will be seen as a more conservative uh, school. However, I think the facts are what the facts are. Uh, so as I said, uh, Dr. Brent O'Quinn, uh, professor of history, uh, if you could, could you just kind of bring us into your area of study for those that aren't familiar with you? What have you been studying? Uh, what your educational experience looks like? And then we can jump into some of the current topics. Sure. Okay. So, um, see, my educational background is that I got my bachelor's degree from LSU. And it was there that I really was drawn to Southern history. I had a couple of just excellent uh, professors there uh, that turned me from a journalism major to wanting to pursue history. And then I went on to get a master's degree from Miami of Ohio and a PhD in uh, history uh, from the University of Arkansas, where I went to study specifically under um, a man named Willard Gatewood uh, from North Carolina, a Duke product. Who, um, who studied uh, American history in the American South after the Civil War. He primarily wrote about African-American history. Uh, I, and I kind of followed in his footsteps. Uh, I'm not an African-American historian um, purely like he was. I deal more with race relations, and actually a lot of my writing has been more on whites. And there are treatment of African-Americans, their views of African-Americans than, say, African-American history per se. So I I would consider myself a a post-Civil War Southern uh, historian who emphasizes sort of race relations, um, uh, politics, and and the law. Uh, I've published two books in those areas, and that's how I describe myself as a historian. Okay. Perfect. I, I appreciate that summary. Uh, before my next thing, could you go ahead tell us a little bit more about those two books? Yes. Yeah, so um, let's see. When I was in my master's program, looking for a topic to write on for my thesis, I just happened upon a, a footnote uh, in a book actually about what's called massive resistance, um, white um, resistance to the early stages of the civil rights movement. Uh, actually taking to the streets. Maybe images uh, may come to your mind uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, when the attempt was made to integrate Central High School, and you actually see a mob of whites out there 
literally preventing the children from getting into the school. That's massive resistance. Anyway, there's a footnote in a book on that topic mentioning um, um, an Alabama figure who's a Confederate soldier, uh, but who as governor and later as a federal judge, even despite his past as a Confederate soldier, really took some brave stances with regard to uh, promoting black civil rights, both as governor and as a judge. And um, that intrigued me. You know, that's not something you oftentimes see, a uh, Confederate soldier, ex-Confederate soldier doing something like that. And when I saw nothing had been published about him, uh, I just sort of wanted to know more of his story. His name is Thomas Jones, Thomas Good Jones. And really from from that start, I got those two books. My first book was really about um, about him as a federal judge, and as I got into reading his papers, personal papers, I saw that he was corresponding with other white federal judges in the South, and they're talking about the racial situation and, and what should be done and could be done, and and they were they were not perfect people, but they they were committed to equal legal rights for African American and were struggling with how to how to provide that in the racist era of the 1890s and early 1900s when they were on the bench. So my first book looked at uh, those individuals and then my second book is more of just a biography of Jones. So I, while I do look at his judicial record and his time on the bench in the biography like I did in the first book, it's a full biography that looks at his time as governor where he was really trying to uh, he took a stance against lynching that made him unpopular, a stance uh, on educating African-Americans, providing public funds to uh, black schools that made him unpopular. Um, um, so he's a, he's a really interesting figure, and I've come to learn a lot, not only about Alabama, where he's from, and Southern society, but just race relations in the history of our country, uh, doing research for those two books. Great. Thank you for that. Great. So when it when it comes to, like I said, uh, historical topics and current topics that are dividing people, what frustrates me is a lot of times these conversations don't they can't go but so far because the facts end up getting debated. So we can't even move forward about what we should do because there's these uh, there are these uh, conflicting opinions about what actually happened or why it happened. And uh, like I said, there are a variety of things that we can cover, but let's let's go further back. You mentioned uh, seeing yourself as uh, having a focus on post-Civil War uh, and then from there on. Mm -hmm. But since you mentioned the Civil War, uh, you know, a big topic right now is uh, Confederate monuments, uh, Confederate names on buildings, and the Confederate flag, and then what the Civil War was about even to begin with. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, hopefully this isn't too much to start with, but could you answer this? What was the Civil War being fought over? Well, the Civil War was being fought ultimately over slavery. Uh, that is what drove the South to the point of um, seceding from the, from the Union, as they called it, and, and seeking to form uh, their own country. Now, they, you know, neo-Confederates today and, and Confederates back then, say that they were fighting for states' rights. Um, 
states' rights was the basis upon which they seceded, uh, but they did not secede because of states' rights. Uh, there was nothing going on in, in the time in which the South left the Union that would prompt them to leave because of states' rights. Um, the, the fact of the matter is uh, the South seeks to leave the Union because Lincoln is elected president. Uh, a Republican is elected uh, to the White House. Uh, abolitionists were generally supporters of that party, although not all of them. Um, and in the eyes of Southerners, that was just uh, intolerable. Um, and they make that clear in their uh, statements of secession, uh, where they, uh, they point to Lincoln's election, uh, though they clearly, explicitly say that they're seeking to protect the institution of slavery, to, to promote it and to you know, see to it that it, it persists into the future. Um, now, they talk about, um, in some of those ordinances of secession, that how, how the Union was a compact and the North had broken that compact, and, and that's, that revolves around the whole issue of states' rights. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is just that that was just completely wrongheaded, legally speaking, constitutionally speaking. Uh, the Constitution replaced what was for the most part, a compact of states. Uh, so the United States was not a, and the Constitution was not a compact, where if one party broke it, then the whole agreement was broken. Um, but on top of that, even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, say, okay, if it was a compact, what exactly did the North do to sort of break the agreement? And the best that Southerners came up with in their ordinances of secession and other documents is to say, that Northerners were not um, fulfilling the Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution. Um, and, and indeed, Northern states, Northern cities, not all of them, but many of them refused to really participate. But that's a, there's a long story there, and I'll try to make it short, but the, the Fugitive Slave Laws being passed by the Congress were atrocious. They were unconstitutional, um, and and they flew in the face of justice uh, and were an offense to to even white Northerners. Um, they made it so that uh, if a black was apprehended as a suspected fugitive, he or she couldn't testify on their own behalf in a trial. You know, trying to determine is this really an escaped slave? Uh, the judge overseeing that trial. Uh, would be paid more if the verdict was indeed that the black person was a slave, a, a fugitive slave, and therefore should be returned to the South. And then finally, on top of that, um, northern states and cities said, look, if you read the Constitution, it doesn't say states will return fugitive slaves. It merely says fugitive slaves will be returned. It doesn't identify who's in charge of that process. And their argument was, if anything, it's the federal government. The Constitution was written with the federal government in mind, and some state officials should not be a part of this. That was the main thing southern northern states were doing. They were prohibiting their own judges, their own law enforcement officials from participating in the apprehension of fugitive slaves. And they had a good basis for not for doing that. And that is because 
The Constitution did not explicitly say states in the North were responsible for that, but rather it implied the federal government. So I know it's, it's a long uh, answer to your question, but obviously, you know, what was the Civil War about is a topic that massive books have been written on. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's slavery. It's just a threat, potential threat to slavery that drives the South out of the Union. And really, when you look deeply at that, uh, it's a real overreaction from the South. There's no threat to slavery where it existed, unfortunately. Uh, in 1861, Lincoln and the Republican Party said, we're not going to do anything. We can't do anything about slavery where it exists now. They said, but we're not going to allow it to expand. And for Southerners, that was just unacceptable. And uh, so one by one, Southern states left the Union. Right. So, you know, we had an interview before about Confederate monuments, mm-hmm. and it actually, I think, made the local paper uh, some of your your comments on those <laughs> on those things. Yeah. Uh, so, now that we have an understanding of of what the war was being fought over, mm-hmm. uh, how are you looking at the idea of uh, Confederate monuments? And I say that because the way you just described it, essentially, uh, the South, in essence, was at the time anti-country, so to speak, when you're seceding, uh, that's not definitely a a uh, pro-America approach. And when we think about the idea of monuments, my understanding of them is they're uh, highlighting uh, moments, figures, or people, uh, or institutions that we want to herald. Uh, Mm -hmm. So... I've always wondered, even even as a child before I began to understand the dynamics of race, I knew mm-hmm. how the war, Civil War worked, and I thought, well, why are there buildings named after people who were anti? Why are we honoring or venerating uh, people that are anti-America? How have you thought through that? Yes, well, I've had many same thoughts. Um, when it comes to monuments and statues, um, when you have those of Confederates, regardless of where they are, it is a bit puzzling. You know, why uh, are we, as you said, heralding those who essentially fought a war against the, the United States of America, against the, the country? Um, and they fought it for a, a terrible, evil, wicked cause, ultimately. <clears throat> And so just on those grounds alone, you can make an argument against the, you know, the Confederate statues that we find dotting the landscape, not only in the South, but in other places uh, of the country. And we, we see some of those coming down now, and for good reason. Um, but I think a, sort of another answer to your question, to what we're talking about, is that a lot of those statues went up at a time after the Civil War, obviously, uh, where um, after Reconstruction, when for a brief time African Americans in the South possessed and exercised basically full political rights, enjoyed a, a great degree of social equality. Uh, but once that period was overthrown and ended uh, violently at times, um, and, and white Southern Democrats had regained control of the South politically and will hold 
control of it for the next century. Uh, they make they they want to make sure the message gets out that uh, the South is sort of a white man's country, and that yes, blacks will live in the South. We want them to live in the South, actually, uh, for a variety of reasons. But in living in the South, they need to know their place and and keep their place and act and speak appropriately, at least in as we see it. And uh, we see white Southern Democrats undertake a campaign we just call the white supremacy campaign, where the the general message is that whites are supreme. And anyone who challenges that notion here in the South uh, poses a threat to it, uh, they will incur the wrath of uh, white Southerners. Um, uh, But to get that message across, they do a number of things, and maybe we'll talk about some of those, but one of them is to put up Confederate statues. It's not just putting up statues. It's putting them in the front of the courthouse, putting them on state capitol grounds, putting them in major intersections. That's all designed to to send a message. Um, Now, like today, when you talk to a lot of defenders of those statues, you know, they say, well, we're just honoring people who sort of fought for their homes, just honoring the average Confederate soldier or or someone like Robert E. Lee who did have some you know, virtuous aspects to his personal private life. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is that's, why, that's not why those statues were put up in the first place. Uh, those statues were, were designed to, to send a message. Um, and uh, that message was one of, of white supremacy. And also to, to kind of establish a mindset or uh, to help help further support a mindset that people were trying to inculcate in others in the South and the mindset that basically the, the South was right, the white South was. It's one of the things they'll argue. I mean, Alexander Stevens argued this in his famous Cornerstone speech uh, when the Confederacy was first formed, that saying the Confederacy is formed on the basis of the knowledge that we have that you have inferior and superior races. Um, men are not equal. In fact, he specifically targets that phrase uh, in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. And so the wisdom of the Confederacy is that we recognize that as being a false statement. And so the South, Confederate South, is going to be one based on the inequality of the races and the supremacy of the white race. And so... Um, so it was that message that, and that mindset of, of the South being right, because they recognized the true character of the black race, and therefore they're going to they're going to organize their society in a way that matches that understanding, and it's that society, as we know, both know, it's a society where blacks enjoy at best a second class citizenship and or um, subjected to oppression and exploitation and and um, uh, being denied basic um, civil and political rights uh, so uh, I think when it comes to those statues that was what was ultimately um, the foundation for their erection in the first place uh, they never should have been put up in the first place 
So I think it's super helpful to hear you say that because, like I said, when we try to have these conversations about about America's history and race and racism, a lot of times I can say as an as a black male, in, in some of these conversations, the opposing side typically assumes that if I said the same things that you just said, which I have, I haven't studied at the length that you have, but I arrived at a lot of the same conclusions and observed a lot of the same things, Mm -hmm. uh, the assumption will be, well, you're just saying that because you're black or you're saying that because you're liberal, which I am not. (laughs) But it's just, it seems as if though uh, the facts, like I said, the facts are being debated and we can't really get past, uh, well, what happened or why did it happen? But like I said, I, I arrived at the same places uh, that you did. So mm-hmm. with that in mind, I think that it's important to to be very clear about history in the sense of we can't take this revisionist approach to make what happened in the past fit the perspective that we want to project in the present. And I think once again, politically, there's this divide of, of protecting the sanctity of Americana, uh, the Confederacy, and so on and so forth. And that, in the political sphere, seems to be at odds with people that want to deconstruct certain systems that are seen as racist or white supremacist or oppressive to black people. I think that's happening in the political sphere, but that fight can't cause us to then deny what happened and why it happened. Uh, to fit those narratives. If people are going to have that political fight, I think that's that's for those people. But mm-hmm. I, I, I think I wanted to have you on because I know that, once again, my voice in a lot of these things oftentimes isn't heard because of those, those assumptions. But, yeah. you know, we're, we're clearly um, uh, come from different generations. I'm originally from Washington, D.C., uh, we come from different backgrounds, but when we look at the the books and, yeah. and the history and the facts, I mean, it's clear, you know, how, how we got here. And you went even further to talk about uh, systems that are in place even after the fact and even in the present day. And uh, unfortunately, once again, when I speak about issues of, of injustice and uh, whether it's policing or housing or governmental access or access to resources or even banking, uh, some might perceive it as uh, looking for a handout. Uh, black people not, or minorities not being willing to, to work or uh, wanting some type of uh, assistance that is unjust or undue. But I think beyond slavery, it's important to note that there were systems in place that continued oppression. So even though uh, the slaves are free, there are still systems in place that I think is protecting certain groups and debilitating other groups. And I know you've spoken about that before. You, I remember you gave me a list of some things that uh, could basically modernize slavery in the present day. Could you speak to that? Sure. Let me let me make the a broader point first, and then maybe I'll, I'll turn and, and get a little more specific. And just say that uh, those those things that white Southerners, particularly Democrats, white Southern Democrats in the 1880s to the beginning of the 20th century instituted, um, many of those persisted in one form or another 
uh, until the 1950s and 60s, and, and even beyond that, but some of them quite clearly into the 50s and 60s, um, making it so that you have generations of African Americans um, who are um, who are being oppressed, uh, who makes it much more difficult for the average black person in America throughout the 20th century to just be in a situation where they are a two-parent family, raising kids, owning their own home eventually, you know, having being gainfully employed. That's much more difficult when you're in a, a position of, of a second-class citizen and others are seeking to... Uh, sort of exploit you for your labor as a cheap laborer. And it, it really makes it so that coming into our present day, at the very least, you have sort of that, that legacy that, that still exists in the, in the sense of um, where, where African-Americans are coming from much more of a disadvantage. It, it's a great advantage to people when, when you as a child are being raised in a two-parent home and you're, you're on your own home and it's safe and fairly comfortable and you get a good education, your chances of success as an adult are much better. And that was something that, that African-Americans generally in the South were deprived of for generations. And so that's not something you can just quickly reverse. So, oh, well, we see the mistake of that now. Uh, so we declare racism to be dead and gone. Now you should succeed. Well, it doesn't work that way when you've had generations of of sort of things being broken in the black family and community uh, to a great extent because of the way blacks were targeted for oppression and discrimination and exploitation throughout much of the 20th century. Now. To go back to the specifics and some of the ways in which that was done, um, in the South, we know that, um, for instance, the, the entire judicial system, law enforcement system, in many places uh, was, was prejudiced against African Americans, was specifically targeting African Americans. Um, uh, for one reason for that is because uh, Southern states utilized what was called convict leasing, uh, where the state rented out their prisoners to companies or large landowners. And so states got paid a lot of money not to have to house, clothe, or feed, or watch their prisoners. It was a great deal. Instead of having to run expensive prisons and, and uh, costly, uh, they actually get paid for not having to maintain a penitentiary. And convict leasing continued on throughout the South, uh, throughout the South um, from the 1880s until the 1940s and 50s. And we know to get as many African Americans into that convict leasing system as possible, the way you get in is by being arrested and convicted of a crime. We know that African Americans were being falsely accused uh, by law enforcement, uh, being specifically targeted by law enforcement, the lawmakers are passing laws with blacks in mind, thinking, hey, we, we make this illegal. The chances of uh, blacks being arrested for it goes up, something like just loitering uh, or 
gambling in public. They came up with things that both blacks and whites are generally guilty of. They said, but here's a law, though, that, that our law enforcement can use to target blacks. Um, <clears throat> but that's not really, that's not a thing of the past, is it? I mean, if, if you've read or, or watched uh, Just Mercy, right, you see that sort of law enforcement and judicial system in play in the 1980s, right, where they're they're not treating the races equally, that they're targeting blacks. And in this case, not just so much, even in the case of you know, just mercy, not just putting African-Americans into the penal system, but in this case, setting them up for death by, uh, on, on death row, being executed by the state, taking their lives from them. So you had that sort of that sort of law enforcement and judicial system in the South throughout the 20th century. And when we want to say, okay, that's a that's from the past, where we recognize the error of our ways, uh, for African Americans to just suddenly love the police and think that the law enforcement and judicial systems of the South and elsewhere are going to be perfectly fair and equal. You, you can't reverse generations of unequal justice um, overnight. Um, it's just not realistic. It's not going to happen. And uh, for those who are sort of puzzled as to why there's sort of an African-American suspicion of, of law enforcement, but I personally believe most, most cops are good people. I don't panic when I see a cop. But I can also understand why a black person is much more uneasy around law enforcement and much more uneasy in the judicial system than I would be. Uh, and, and so that, it goes back to, like you said, history, knowing the history of our country, knowing the history particularly of the American South and when it comes to, to race relations. Uh, that part of the, the whole white supremacy campaign was making white supreme to, to keep blacks in the place of of second-class citizen where they're basically exploited for their cheap labor. Um, so that's, I'll leave it at that because I think I probably went on too long, but that's probably the best example is just how, how law enforcement and judicial systems of the South for much of the 20th century uh, were against uh, African-Americans. Right. And I don't... I don't rejoice in that reality uh, from a, I guess, a victim mindset, because I know sometimes the perception is uh, for some that uh, black people want to be able to say, look what you did to us and use that as a coverall excuse for any issue within our community. And I don't I don't think that's the case. I know that's not the case for me personally, but I do think it's important to call a spade a spade and be very realistic about uh, the systemic nature in which oppression has taken place. And I think we'd be, as a, we're all adults here, we'd be foolish to think that people who were financially benefiting from a system uh, of slavery would all of a sudden uh, change their views uh, overnight. Mm -hmm. And all the systems go away, and everyone now all of a sudden is looking at everyone as, as equal. Mm -hmm. um, and even further, we have to be realistic about uh, people's people's hearts not necessarily changing that quickly, but also consider the idea of impact. 
So even though you stop doing something, we have, I don't even think we actually can fully measure how much of an impact what did take place, uh, how much of that impact, or what, we, can, we can't fully measure what the, the extent of the impact is on the African-American community. Um, a shameless plug here, I think it's important to highlight it though, but you mentioned pretty much several things that were in place that broke the black community, but specifically the black family. Uh, and uh, I wrote a book, uh, Whole Brother, uh, Debunking the Myths that Break the Black Family. And in, in putting it out, uh, one of the ways I had to explain it was that we as black people have to deal with the impact of all these systems that were in place uh, to oppress us, but also to create finance, uh, uh, finance and capital for, for others. And I think, honestly, in light of all that has happened, it's really amazing that the African-American community is where it is today in spite of all those things. And we're not just a group of, uh, of lazy people looking for a handout saying, hey, you guys did bad, and now you got to give us all your money. I think we've worked uh, to establish wealth within our community. And the book itself focuses not on the political or financial aspect, but dealing with things within our community that we are accountable for. Um, so, and I think it's important to do that because once again, so often in the political sphere, when these political fights are happening, the narrative is by, pushed by some that uh, black people uh, just want handouts or that we're foolishly leaning on Democrats to fix everything um, or that the left, the radical leftists want to create a space where no one works for what they have. And, uh, you know, another trigger word I would say is white uh, privilege or white power. And a lot of times people push against those things. But I think based on what you've described, and once again, for those that read, it's really hard to get around the idea of white privilege in the sense of there is a benefit from being able to have years and years of, of free labor. There's an extreme benefit there. And I think the benefit isn't for black people, it's for white people. And, and that benefit is a privilege that sets you leaps and bounds ahead of uh, other communities, specifically black people. Uh, if you could speak to this, why do you think there is this difficulty uh, around that idea? Uh, even if we don't call it white privilege, why is it hard to draw the parallel between this system oppressed this group and benefited this group, which was white people, and those benefits have uh, impact in the present day. Why is it hard for people to see those stark differences? Yeah. Now, we're kind of moving out of the realm of historian and just sort of a prognosticator or just uh, just an average citizen who's who has his opinions on things. Yeah, yeah. It's not historically informed, but my sense is that your average, say, uh, white American looks at the country as a, as a land of opportunity with the idea also the land of opportunity but not everyone succeeds and that's because um, they recognize that some people have more advantages than others mm -hmm. and they also recognize that people make mistakes and those uh, are bad decisions and those mistakes and bad decisions keep them from ultimately succeeding and so I think your many whites say, well, 
okay, when when you had legalized segregation and disenfranchisement, and and it was clear that you know blacks couldn't buy a home in a certain part of the of town, and you had those things kind of written into law, they're very much out in the open. Yeah, then then not only are they at a disadvantage, but that is really tipping the scales against that particular group. But for many whites, the idea is that with the civil rights movement, all those things have been done away with. You don't have those impediments anymore. And so in this land of opportunity, why can't more African-Americans succeed? We see some, uh, but we still see just a sort of a plight that plagues African-Americans. And, and I think whites generally want to say, well, that's because they're, they're making mistakes. They're, they're making the bad decisions. Um, and, and so it's not racism that's keeping them down. It's not you know, segregation laws or, or unemployment unemploy- uh, discrimination on the basis of race. It's just they themselves are responsible. And uh, there are a number of answers to that in, in my mind. Uh, the one that comes to mind, first and foremost, it's not the only one, is that, and as I look back on history, I also teach a class in the 1960s, and obviously one of the things we cover in the 60s is the, the sexual and the cultural revolution of that decade, just a monumental shift in attitudes towards sex and culture and, and drugs, just things along those lines. And that was a revolution that was sort of ushered in by sort of wealthy, college-educated whites or those in college. They're the ones who are sort of the point of the spear. And, and, but they led a revolution. The, that cultural and sexual revolution, however, is destructive. It, it, it prevents people from succeeding generally. You know, if you're on drugs or you're, you're fathering children out of wedlock, your chances of you and, and those around you being in poverty probably go, go up significantly. The thing is that when that happened in the 60s, for the most part, many whites, not all of them, had the resources to kind of recover from their involvement in that, that embrace of the cultural and sexual revolution. You know, they father a child out of wedlock, then their family comes along, or they have access to to resources, um, financial resources, that'll help them sort of get over the hump for that. But for uh, the impoverished, for the, those on the margins, they don't have those resources, or not, they're not as readily, readily accessible. Um, and then particularly for African Americans, on top of that, they sort of have, they're still dealing with discrimination. So let's say, go from sex to drugs, you know, an African-American being brought up for a judge on drug charges is more likely going to be convicted because of racial prejudice going back to, I'm thinking the 60s and 70s, but even to the present day, just the, there's still just this image of the, particularly the black male as, as criminal, the black male as someone who, who just kind of naturally does things that, that are destructive and therefore need, needs to be punished. I mean, that just, that 60s revolution was just devastating for the country as a whole. But it, but for the most part, whites were able to sort of 
keep themselves from just destroying their lives and their families more so than the the underclass or the impoverished. In in nineteen mid nineteen sixties, you, you, the civil rights movement is still going on. African Americans have been they're the ones on the fringe, and so I mean I sort of I look back or I look at where sort of the black community is today and family is today. I see that there's a cultural component to that problem. But what I also see is that that cultural component is tied to past racism. It's tied to the fact that that it's at the very moment when um, African Americans are gaining equality, civil equality, and employment discrimination is being done away with by national legislation. Just when it's possible for them to kind of be more and more integrated into American life, this this sexual and cultural revolution comes along, and and for a number of African Americans, like a number of whites, they they have you know they get promiscuous or they get involved in drugs, and then things just really go downhill for parts of that community. Just the same thing's true for parts of the white community. Uh, but I, I just think blacks were in much less of a position to deal with that revolution than whites were because of our history. And to me, that's, when I hear white privilege, or I hear speak, people speak of white privilege, I don't agree with every example given, but I don't deny that concept of white privilege. I think that, for me, this is a clear example of what I've just tried to explain. Uh, whites were in a privileged position because of history, particularly in the South, when the 60s came along and did so much to to hurt families and, and communities. And, and that's why whites in general have been able to, to kind of get through that better than I think many in the black community have been able to. Mm-hmm. So I think now we're getting to the nitty gritty of things. And I appreciate you being comfortable enough to go there. And I'm glad that we can have this conversation. And yeah, because I, I just know a lot of people would be scared to say, okay, well, is there not some level of personal responsibility? Because unfortunately, a lot of the people that are saying that I think are deflecting from conversations about America's responsibility and complicity and mm-hmm. racism. And that's once again why I wrote the book, because I do think that, yeah, there is an aspect to which every community, to include the black community, needs to take responsibility for some of the shortcomings within their community. They're contributing yeah. toward that. However, I have to be honest, there are certain aspects to which I can look at the black community as a whole and say, there are some problems here. There are some cycles here that I think are not helping us advance, but are holding us back. Mm -hmm. Some are personal responsibility inside the home, but there are others that I say are, can be attributed to history and systemic racism that created an, an environment for this to happen. For example, uh, you know, many uh, from both ends will criticize the idea of hip hop. Uh, in hip hop music, there are discussions about um, uh, dr- drugs, drugs, selling. Uh, you know, it used to be about selling them, and more recently, it's about using them. So, 
you know, some will say, you know, those, those thugs, those bad black men are in their community selling drugs to bad pe- uh, to people and they're killing their own community. And I will acknowledge that that is an issue in some black communities. But we have to be clear that not all black people live in uh, inner cities or under-resourced areas. There is a such thing as a black middle class, so we're not <laughs> monolithic. Uh, but for the environments where that does happen, I do think it is wrong uh, you know, for for someone to sell drugs, but at the same time, let's look at history in terms of the in the neighborhoods that people are being placed in, and I think that this is not to justify anything, but I do think that white counterparts, Hispanic counterparts, Asian counterparts, any counterpart of any race, if they were put in the same position in terms of neighborhoods, the historical oppression, and generational lack of wealth. And you, and you put them in, in a bad, under-resourced neighborhood, I think many of us would end up doing things that we otherwise wouldn't do in order to survive. Uh, I didn't have it this bad uh, when I was coming along, but I found that there were several people uh, who I know who, who who were selling drugs. But they weren't doing it because they just love doing bad things. <laughs> They were in such a dire financial situation that that was the only viable option to make money for their family, to eat. So when you look at the history that put people in that position, I think that'll help us uh, have a more informed view of why people make the choices that they make. But also, this scares me a bit, and maybe you can speak to it, but it it's, it's unfortunate that it seems as if, though, sometimes the view is that... Uh, darker-skinned people tend to have a higher propensity for evil. That their blackness is why they're doing those bad or illegal things rather than considering the historical narrative. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And that's very befuddling to me. But at the end of the day, that's the only conclusion that you can reach when you hear some of the rhetoric used by individuals, that <clears throat> that there's just something almost in, intrinsic about black people that makes them more prone to, to do things that are destructive or wrong or evil. And um, <clears throat> as a Christian who, who rejects sort of Darwinian evolution and, and things like that, uh, I just find it particularly perplexing that, that other Christians would think or, or say something along those lines, that they embrace this idea of superior and inferior races and as if an entire race, like you said, because of skin color are gonna, or some other factor, more inclined to, to doing things that are destructive than, than others. No, it's, I think if you, if you would just take a moment and think it through, you you would see that it's it's not a race issue as much as it is a of a, a historical and, and cultural issue. Now cultures develop, and and you can kind of criticize maybe a culture of a community, a particular part of a com- community. But then you still have to continue digging, saying how did that culture develop? And and as you're saying, the, the example you gave those. African Americans in particular, who find themselves in just the poorest sections of the biggest cities 
of the country throughout the 20th century, there's little opportunity uh, for advancement and for employment and, and for good schooling, um, that they find themselves in, they have very few choices. And many of those, the few choices they have are bad choices. Uh, and so they find themselves doing those things. Well, like you said, it's not because they, they're seeking to do wicked or evil things. It's just understanding the, the background that got them there. And there's a historical explanation behind that. Um, so I find that, that those individuals who say the very things that you just asked about, those who just refuse to or fail to think it through and, and come to, to the point of seeing, okay, we as a society, we as whites, the whole country, we helped contribute to this present situation um, in the past uh, through legal actions through and through other means and so while there is definitely a, a personal responsibility component here people still make or responsible for the choices they make <clears throat> but what I just wish more people would do is, is recognize um, uh, sort of the situation circumstances in which people make those decisions and that um, in many ways, they weren't forced to make that decision, but uh, as you, I think, so well put it, if anybody else were in those same circumstances, chances are they would make the same decisions and take the same actions that African Americans are sort of criticized for having done in the past, you know, few uh, decades. Mm -hmm. And I, w I would even go even further to say that all communities make some level of those decisions. I use the example of, uh, of selling drugs, but, uh, you know, white men sell drugs too. It's just that the, the response to it is much different. Yeah. Um, so right. even, even that creates a, a different set of circumstances uh, yes. to, to deal with. So, and, and, I, and also I think access is, is a very real thing. So I know some people who were in an environment where they don't necessarily have friends, family members that have access to uh, local government leaders that is friends with the police chief that has those kinds of relationships. Uh, and of course, I, I won't give any names, but I know someone who I think would have had a bright future. But as far as their relationships, they grew up in a under-resourced environment, inner city, and ended up at a young age falling into a cycle of of being in and out of jail because of bad decisions. But I think they felt as if though those were the only options because they didn't see any other viable ones. Um, they didn't have a parent to give them a small loan <laughs> to, to start a business. They didn't have... Uh, the relational access for a friend to just hire them for their local business. They couldn't just uh, uh, take on mounds of debt to just go to college. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that wasn't an option. But I've also seen people uh, and this and it's this emphasis is a white white friends who in their younger years were also making bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And 
they had parents who had access. I can think of one who was in a cycle of bad decisions, and one day his dad decided, you know what, we need to get you on the right path. So he made a call to get his son an internship at a law firm. And today in 2020, that gentleman is a lawyer. <laughs> right. So, you know, and stuff like that, like, you know, similar situation, different outcome, just based off of access of the parents. Uh, right. And, you know, that access tends to be parallel with color based on our history. But let's let's close with this. For you, as a student of history and also a scholar in history, you've seen some of the ways that we've uh, made mistakes uh, or certain things that were done that led to a bad aftermath. So could you speak to two things? What are some common, for, for the average American, what are some common misreadings or misunderstandings of our history in terms of race? So that's first, what are the common misreadings and misunderstandings of our history in terms of race? And then two, uh, and this is a level of your personal opinion too, what do you think in the present day we can do better to live a more harmonious life as we are very uh, divided right now? Okay. Wow. Um, I wish I had more time to think uh, really about the first of those two questions. Um, but the first one that uh, first answer that comes to mind really is um, just how extensive and um, deep, if you will, the what we call the white supremacy campaign was of the very late 19th and early 20th centuries and how effective it was and destructive it was, but I still will find myself shocked uh, periodically as I read um, scholars who, who write in the field, you know, who are publishing books and articles uh, on the white supremacy campaign, just uh, how extensive it was, um, not only in just physically, if you will, relegating African-Americans to second-class citizenship and, 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 and kind of compelling them, those who could not leave the South in one of the two major great migrations, um, uh, how they could not succeed in life, that they're, they're relegated to, to a position of manual labor and such. But even more nationally, culturally, just the image uh, of African Americans that you get in the in the white person's mind or non-black person's mind, and, and that was that was orchestrated and facilitated and, and and promoted, and it it's something as you refer to, you know that that still we've seen effects of it today. The the image we have, say, of a, of a black man, like oh well, yeah, they're selling drugs. Well, that's that's what we expect. That's that's what black, particularly black males, do. It's, that is not a sort of that added. Not a, it doesn't come out of nowhere. That is something that has been promoted for generations. It gets even gets passed down from generation to generation. 
Uh, and that is just so difficult for a people, I'm thinking like Americans, to rid themselves of. Um, but yeah, like I'll look at advertisements or speeches given on the floor of the U.S. Senate and the things that they say about African-Americans is just, I have to, I have to shake my head, read it again. It's like, did he really just say what I think he said? Just, just the most uh, insulting, racist uh, thing that, that I think could be said about something. Uh, and it's being said in the halls of Congress. It's being said in, in Hollywood movies or in newspaper advertisements. And we may think, okay, that, we don't see that anymore. We, we've, we've done away with that. Um, that may be true, but that, didn't, that doesn't mean that the image that it promoted has gone away and, and doesn't get uh, passed down from sort of generation to generation. Uh, um, so, I mean, I knew growing up, I knew before, even early on as a historian, I mean, I, I knew that whites after the Civil War in the South, you know, weren't nice to blacks and, and you know, wanted to be in control. But I just didn't know the extent to it. Uh, and I think we're still we're finding more and more uh, examples of just uh, of how bad it was. Uh, so that's just an aspect of, of history, I think. I think you asked, you know, what do I wish people knew more about or were more aware of? Uh, it is it is that. Um, as for the present, what could we do more? Uh, this may sound kind of cliche. Uh, just as I sort of observe what's going on, I just, I wish people would um, do what I, one of the things I think we as as a Christian are called to do, and that is sort of a, to empathize with others, to have sympathy for us, to, and to put ourselves in their place and, not, and, you know, put others even before ourselves, treat them as we would want to be treated. All, all those concepts make it so that I wish people would just try to see things from the other person's perspective, people that they're disagreeing with. Because I do see a lot of extreme rhetoric on both sides. If you're just going to say there's a dichotomy, just, I know it's more complicated than just side A and side B, but for the sake of simplicity, you have, the, you know, you have uh, those who think everything's fine with regard to race, and then over here are those who are saying race is a problem. And you have extremists on both sides, and, and they tend to get a lot of the attention, and, and both sides tend to gravitate towards those extremes. Uh, I just, the, the truth is not in either extreme. I find the truth is more complicated. It's more of a mixture. And none of those extremes, I think, would even resonate if there wasn't some truth to them. Um, so, but the, my point is I wish people would be open to truths on both sides, if you will, if that makes sense. I don't want to come across as, I don't know, relativistic or anything, but just this idea that, um, listen to try to understand things from the perspective of the the other person. That, I think that's for whites towards blacks, and then even blacks towards whites. I think we'd have more harmony if if more blacks um, to think from, for things from a white perspective. Why are they saying that? 
sometimes it may just be racial animus. But for others, it might not be racial animus. It's just sort of a, they don't understand things. Um, and uh, I think it would just be helpful if if we saw more of that. Hey, I, I see where you're coming from, but um, have you considered this? Or do you what do you think of these things? Uh, that you at least acknowledge where the other person's coming from and, and try to see... Um, what truth is found in their position. Does that make sense? I hope so. Yeah, it does. And it reminds me of a friend of mine, Lisa Fields. She runs a Christian apologetics organization. And they just had an event pretty much talking about these current racial tensions. And it was called Listen, Lament, Legislate. And they also have merchandise promoting that as well. That's the Jew 3 project. And I think that sums it up well, at least from an African-American perspective, uh, if you, uh, you know, of the, of the Christian point of view, I think that listening is a start, mm-hmm. uh, lamenting, you know, th- there's that. But then for me, I'm on, I'm on this, this side of the legislation because I think for so long it's just been maybe listening and some lamenting, but we never get to the legislation. I think, yeah. as, 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 you, as you said historically, you know, much of this has to do with, with legislation. Um, and that will be a difference maker. Um, I don't even feel the need to debate with someone about whether they're racist or not, or their personal views, or if you if you like the Confederate flag or they say the N word. I mean, all those things. At this point, you know, one person's personal views and opinions uh, are are their problem. But when you then couple that with power, it becomes my problem, which is why legislation uh, is important. Uh, for those that are interested uh, in connecting with you, uh, might want to come study under you. Let them know where you teach at. Uh, those previous two books you mentioned, let them know what those are and where they can get them at, and also of any future projects that may be on the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I teach at the uh, Southeastern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. Um, I primarily teach in the undergraduate portion of that institution known as the College at Southeastern. If you go to uh, uh, SEBTS for Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary edu, uh, you can go to the faculty page, and, and all my contact information is there. Uh, and uh, I believe also posted there with my picture, in addition to my contact information, my uh, CV, like my resume. Uh, so it'll show all the various works and, and talks I've given and, and, and have done. Uh, my two books, uh, one's called a, a Rift in the Clouds. That's about the, the Southern federal judges who tried to do the right thing um, and were thwarted, actually, by the Supreme Court. Uh, only eventually uh, in the 1950s and 60s did the Supreme Court eventually kind of come around to their way of thinking. Um, so that's what that book is about. And then the second book is just a biography of a man named Thomas Goo Jones. So that's the name of the book. Uh, the subtitle is... Um, uh, politics, race, and justice uh, in the New South. And so I just would direct you to, to Amazon. You type in my last name, obviously, and, and those two books uh, should come up. Uh, but, um, yeah, so uh, teach history in the college. We have a history uh, major, a history minor. We also have a, a pre-law track uh, as well as an education track, like a social studies track to teach history uh, in high school or grade school. Uh, so if you're interested in any of those things, I would 
uh, love for you to come to Wake Forest, North Carolina, and uh, and study history with me. And for those that may not have caught it based on how I said it, that's Dr. Brent O'Quinn, A-U-C-O-I-N. Uh, when you're searching on Amazon, shouldn't be hard to find at all. Once again, thank you for joining us. My name is Malik Blade, and this has been the Whole Brother Mission Podcast. Thank you.